This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Investigators still looking into the deadly truck attack that occurred yesterday in Manhattan near the World Trade Center. Eight people dead, 11 injured. Uh, of course, uh, as you know, pickup truck heading down a pedestrian uh, slash uh, bicycle pathway. And, uh, and of course, uh, taking out a whole uh, pile of people in, in the process. Uh, eight dead at this point, uh, 11 injured. And, of course, trying to find out about the person who uh, was responsible for this, their affiliation, uh, if any, with any sort of organizations. It appears at this point um, that this was a lone wolf attack. That being said, uh, certainly references to ISIS uh, in regard to a note and uh, what people had heard the man saying before he, or just after rather, he jumped out of a truck. The part that's really bizarre in all of this, you rent a truck that's certainly uh, capable, big and heavy, uh, of doing a lot of damage. Y- you drive down a bike path like this and, and do what you're doing, and then you exit the vehicle with a pellet gun and a paintball gun, which, uh, you know, suggests, as it did to Phil Gursky from Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, that th- this is someone who's looking for suicide by cop. You know, uh, a simple household knife could have done way more damage than than this sort of thing. So that part is confusing, although, uh, as I mentioned, certainly references to ISIS uh, in uh, in other evidence that was found at the scene. Uh, President Trump answered, uh, of course, with a swack of tweets. Um, and, of course, uh, the usual rhetoric about clamping down on immigrants, even blaming Chuck Schumer for uh, his involvement in uh, immigration policy and such. Let's bring in George uh, Breckenridge, uh, retired political science professor at McMaster University. He's with us now. George, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No, no problem, Scott. So, uh, again, over history, George, there's crisis, whatever it is, whether it's war, whether it's attack, whether it's natu- natural, whether it's something like this. What's the role of the president and uh, what should the president be saying in times like this? Well, I mean, if you um, normally, I mean, the president is the uh, what some people call the mourner in chief as, as his head of state. That's part of his job to reassure people, to, you know, to deplore what's happened, to say we're going to do something about this. But Trump, of course, you know, did some of that. But, of course, what he did, he can't avoid using it to uh, push some of his pesh, his pet uh, peeves, on, for example, on immigration. I, he was just on television a few minutes ago and saying, you know, this, this guy, this guy from Uzbekistan brought 23 relatives in with him. And he came in 2010. So his argument all along has been that immigrants are the people who are cause the most crime. Now, the statistics don't show that at all, but in this particular case, I'm afraid it does. And so he um, now there's a, there's a case to be made uh, that that uh, America should shift or its uh, immigration uh, procedures more in the Canadian direction, you know, where, um, where something like two-thirds of Canadian immigrants are so-called merit-based, and the rest are family reunion, that sort of thing. The American system is heavily skewed towards family uh, reunion. And uh, so there's a, you can make an argument that they ought to move a little closer to the kind of system we've got. But, of course, he has to tie it to this, you know, which is, 
which is really um, not the best way to, to have a sensible debate on immigration, let's put it that way. Well, well, obviously, whether it's a good idea or not, people's backs are up just by the presentation. So what does that say right there? Pardon? Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, there might be some merit to what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, that being say, that being said, the way he says it gets people's backs up already. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is you know this is not the best time to have a rational uh, discussion on immigration. I say there's plenty of room. <laughs> One of his prejudices has always been he's been against trade agreements and he's been against immigration. Although he doesn't, you know, he's not big on the details on any of these things. Mm. But this, you know, so as I said, immigration probably does need an overhaul. The immigration system probably does need an overhaul, but um, not, you know, this is not the the context in which you want to do it. And I, I don't think Trump is capable of uh, leading, you know, uh, encouraging the Congress to have a sensible discussion on this. Uh, he tweeted, I have just ordered Homeland Security to step up our already extreme vetting program. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> well, well, immigrants are very heavily vetted in the first place. Everybody says so. It, but it, it's you know he needs to be tough. He needs to be seen to be tough. He always wants to be tough. He talked earlier a few minutes ago on television about you know tougher punishment. We need tougher punishment. That sort of thing. <clears throat> there are a lot of sensible things you can do. I was in London about three weeks ago. You know where they had a couple of these incidents in London. And what they've done there is there are certain precautions you can take. Otherwise, these things are almost impossible to predict. And what they've done is, and what what could be done in New York, and exactly what I'm sure will be done in New York in exactly the same way, is they put a low barrier between the traffic and the pedestrians on the bridges. Uh, and the same they could do. Obviously, they have to do the same thing in New York to separate the traffic. So it's impossible for a car or a truck to jump over onto the pedestrian with the pedestrian area. So these are just common sense things that need to be done in response, because otherwise you can't. That being said, George, I mean, can we can we totally protect this sort of thing? I mean, I just no, had you a, can't. a threat no, and arrest no. assessment guy on and said the same thing that, you know, well, right. if you if you block off this portion of the street, they'll go one block over. Well, but there are also the other thing you need to do is to is to is to prevent cars from moving into pedestrian areas more generally, and yeah. so more bollards, you know, the kind of stuff they got around the White House. You know, they got all kinds of of concrete barriers, low low barriers, but enough to prevent any kind of vehicle approaching the White House. And you just have to think more about this since this is. is Turned out to be the uh, the uh, method, the terrorist method of choice in the West at the minute. Uh, you just have to find sort of out with them and and try as best you can. But you're never going to stop it entirely. This uh, this guy is apparently a, what they call a case of self radicalization, and there's so much stuff available on the internet that if people get into this kind of mode for however you explain why some people go this way. Um, then, you know, the, they're being advised to do these, you know, to by ISIS to make these individual attacks. And you're never going to complete, uh, stop it completely. I mean, France has had it, Britain has had it, and now, you know, the United States as well. Uh, his Trump, uh, his latest, uh, the terrorists came to our country through what is called a, quote, diversity visa lottery program, a yeah. Chuck Schumer beauty. I want merit-based. <laughs> well, uh, he can't, you see, he can't resist from making it partisan as yeah, well, you know. Yeah. See, his relationship with Schumer is an interesting one because they're both New Yorkers, very much New Yorkers. 
And so they speak the same language in a sense, you know, but are on different sides of the fence at this particular moment. And so he's had a kind of an on-again, off-again relationship with Schumer. But, I mean, again, you know, attacking uh, a Democrat, in uh, the Democratic leader in the Senate, actually, um, in this way, is just is, is, is not the thing to be doing at this particular point. It, well, really, it really isn't. And again, George, getting back to how we started this conversation, yeah. I mean, this is tragedy, this is despair within yeah. the country. At this point, do you use that opportunity to bring people together, or well, do you use it to divide them? Well, that's right. I mean, he, uh, as somebody as... Somebody said, one of the members of Congress said, you know, he's, he's using his usual nasty, divisive ways. That's the only thing he seems to know. You know, he's not capable in any real sense. When he tries to read something, you know, that, that normal presidents would do to try and reassure the population and bring people together, you know, he's very wooden, you know. What he really, you know, his visceral reaction is this divisive one. And this kind of stuff, of course, plays very heavily with his base. And the sad part is, George, if something like this doesn't unite a country, what does? Well, that's right. That's right. Exactly. It's a tragedy. I mean, and if you take the example of 9-11, you know, which was a very much worse, mm. awful thing, um, it did have the effect, in, in a, and this was under President Bush, George yeah. W. Bush, it did have the effect of not only rallying New Yorkers who responded in a, you know, in a courageous, uh, resilient way, uh, but it helped to rally the nation. And so pre- a president can lead in that direction, as George W. Bush did on that occasion. You know, you bring up an interesting point, George. I wonder what would have happened if Trump was the leader uh, during uh, that attack as opposed yeah. to the leader who was. Because, again, you remember in the days afterwards, uh, strong leadership from Bush, from, yeah. from Rudy Giuliani uh, even. Right. Uh, I remember the shot of Bush standing on the on the fire truck or yeah, whatever yeah. with one of the, with the fire chief or right. what have you. I mean, and again, telling people, you know, uh, to be strong and That's we're, right. we're going to get through this. I yeah. mean, in the same scenario, would Trump be standing up and blaming <laughs> people for this? I mean, come on. No, no, I mean, that's just not his style at all. The other important thing that, that, that Bush did shortly after that was to go to a mosque and say, this is not a war against Islam. You wouldn't get Trump going anywhere you touching anything like that. How do you think, uh, you know, it just seems we have so much to distract us. I remember yeah. talking to an expert the other day said, saying, whatever happened to North Korea? It seems that that's <laughs> right. taken, uh, you know, a backseat yeah, to all of this. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, do you see this changing policy in any way uh, with Trump, This what has happened in New York? No, I mean, you know, as I say, with the immigration is, is where you really could get some change in policy. Um, but, he's, you know, his way of going, his belligerent way and divisive way of going about it doesn't really help. I don't think the Congress is actually in the mood to do anything. They've got plenty on their plate with taxes and everything else. And um, it's, it's also, you know, NAFTA is coming up again in the new year and all the rest of it. So it, it's, it is, you're right about North Korea. I mean, you know, what is, what is the most acute, acute crisis in the world <laughs> suddenly has disappeared. I know, like a couple of weeks ago, George, we were heading into World War III. That's what happened? Right. That's it, right, exactly. Unbelievable. Now he's going out there. He's going out to Asia on Friday. To reignite it again. 
Well, yeah, that's the danger. He'll say something really stupid or or, device, or uh, divisive about North Korea. So, so that's the, the real danger once he gets close. On the other hand, you know, he wants he's, he's good, he, he may actually sort of be a little bit more statesmanlike in dealing with China and things like that as he gets close up to the situation. I think he should take Dennis Rodman with him. <laughs> Just sort of as a wingman. Well, the only man who knows Kim Jong Un. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Why <laughs> not? American he's the secret. Man. He's the secret weapon. We're not even taking <laughs> advantage of here, George. Uh, well, jo- they ought to do something like that. They ought to find out what other things uh, Kim Jong Un uh, really likes. And, uh, and uh, you know, invite them over, that sort of thing. Maybe that's the way to deal with them. George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor at McMaster University. George, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Yeah. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The uh, parliamentary budget overseer, parliamentary budget office, um, officer, I should say, uh, is predicting that our economy is going downhill from here, which seems odd because last week we were being told that we had the strongest economy in the G7. What the heck is going on? Uh, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. We appreciate this. Not a problem. I've just, I've just finished uh, killing a gopher, and I'm going through the entrails as we're speaking <laughs> to sort out which direction the economy is going this week. <laughs> well, yeah, shouldn't there be a groundhog for this? I mean, there might as well be. Yes. So what you're getting here are a couple of problems. Let me, let me start with one obvious one, is that our data is always out of date. Meaning today's headline in the paper was that the numbers for our gross domestic product in August showed that our economy shrank a whole 0.1%. Ooh, the month before in July it didn't move at all. So now we got two months, no movement or virtually no movement at 0.1% declining. But that's August. Here we are. Now we're in November. We're always looking in the rearview mirror to try to steer the car. And this is why you get the conflicting reports. In just a couple of days, probably not Friday, but a week from Friday, you're going to get Canada's jobs numbers from October. October might be a good month for jobs, but it wasn't a good month in August. And so this is, this is why you get these conflicting stories as to how good or how bad the economy is at any one moment. Uh, we heard last week uh, the strongest economy in the G7. Uh, is that still accurate? What, how should Canadians be feeling today? Right. So I'm, I'm going to stick with that. I, I think Canada's economy is still pretty strong. I think as we head into 2018 that it's going to cool a bit. But I still think we're going to have reasonable growth numbers. But I don't think they're going to be in the 3 3.5% range. I think they're going to be more in the low 2% range. Now, why am I saying that? What tea leaves am I looking at here? Well, the reason why our economy shrank in August, August was a very bad month for oil and gas. And nearly half of our Toronto Stock Exchange are companies tied up to petroleum, oil, and natural gas. But let's remember what happened. September came along, and we had a couple of hurricanes enter the equation, which really knocked some things around. And now, today, here we are, November 1st, oil is trading at around $55 a barrel. Back in August, it was under $50 a barrel. So there has been some growth since that time that says that maybe there is some more energy still in this economy. I'm not going to take it to the bank at, at 3 3.5%, but I also don't think the sky is falling. Uh, and so to go back to your initial comment on the parliamentary budget office, 
What they're questioning then is the finance minister's projections. So in doing any budget, the finance minister has to say, I think my revenues, which come from the economic growth, are going to grow at 1% or 2% or 3%. And the parliamentary budget office says, I I don't feel comfortable with the numbers that Mr. Morneau used going into 2018. They would use a slightly lower figure. We saw the opposite happen back in March when Mr. Morneau came out with the budget. He used numbers that everybody thought was fine that turned out to be low. And guess what that did? That gave them $10 more billion that actually reduced the deficit then from $28 billion to $18 billion. Uh, and that's how volatile these situations are and how, how eerie and spooky, actually, this whole thing of economic forecasting is because I really don't know for sure what's going to happen. Tell me if North Korea fires off a a nuclear weapon. Tell me if Donald Trump rips off NAFTA. I can tell you what the economy is going to be like, but until I know those things, we're just kind of making our best guesses at any one time. Uh, Speaking of NAFTA, not to get sidetracked, but just for a little sidebar here, boy, there's more and more uh, Republican representatives that are coming out saying this will take jobs away from, uh, from America if you scrap NAFTA. Is that rhetoric settling down? (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, I'm thrilled to hear that rhetoric. I think most other people who are rational and logical are thrilled with that rhetoric. But I just use two words that don't necessarily apply to Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not sure it's changed anything. So remember what's happening. We're going to meet for another round of NAFTA negotiations in mid to late November. Uh, what the Americans are doing right now, they're trying to send a message to Canada and the United States is give up. It's hopeless. Give us all the concessions. By the way, we want your firstborn, too. Give us everything we want. Fortunately, we're not blinking, and I think these negotiations are on for several more months. I just don't pay any attention to the rhetoric on any one day. All right. uh, Getting back to uh, uh, the parliamentary budget officer, uh, he still goes on to say economic growth will slow over the next few years. Consumer spending moderates, uh, especially tied to uh, residential investment. Uh, How does housing play into all of this? Yeah. So remember what we we, collectively, I guess I can say, have been trying to do. We thought the housing market was overheating. Prices were going up at an unsustainable rate. And what we have all been worried about is called a bubble, where one day, suddenly, housing prices fall by 30%. That's the kind of disaster that we saw back in 2007-8 in the United States, which then caused a recession. So all the powers that be, and I'm talking here now both provincial and federal, have been trying to pass regulations to cool the market, calm the market. And even now, even now it, we get mixed signals as to how successful that is. On one hand, the people, the real estate agents, tell us that the number of houses being sold and bought every month, the number of houses appearing on the market, have dropped. So we're not getting as much volume on the one side. On the other side, prices have remained fairly constant during this period and, in fact, have edged up a bit. So, you know, his view of it, I'm not saying his view of it is wrong. I can certainly see a scenario which says the market goes back to more normal levels, which is some more cooling going on there. And, yeah, we can't expect the housing market to drag our economy forward. But at the same time, I can see some non-housing things like international trade. Remember, CETA just came into effect a month or so ago. If this gives us the benefits we wanted, which is more trade with Europe, we could see those numbers go up, and they could pick up the slack from housing. So that's why I'm reluctant to say we're going into some tailspin. I think there are just as many scenarios that see strong growth, maybe not quite as strong as this year, but still in the 2 2.5% range. Uh, what about changes coming to uh, mortgage rules come December 31st? Uh, how, is, how are we going to enter the new year with that? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, again, that's a good question. And some of those mortgage rules don't actually affect 
difficult mortgages. They actually affect people who, who've got really good credit ratings and have great down payments, but we're saying we've got to stress test their mortgage a bit more. I think my philosophy here, again, is if you have a sound reason to buy a house and you've soundly worked out the finances, it's going to have no effect on you at all. Where it may have an effect are people who've, dream, uh, who've been dreaming a little bit as in their purchases, and they wanted to buy more house than they could really afford. I think they'll still be able to buy a house, but they're going to get a reality check that says, you really can't buy that million-dollar mansion. You need to scale down to something in the $600,000, $700,000 range, which is still lots of house, but it, you need something more realistic. So I think, again, it's going to have the cooling effect, but not the balloon-breaking effect that we all worry about. So what does all of this mean? How are Canadians to interpret this? As you mentioned, uh, interest rates, lots of chatter around that. And if they will go up again or if they will go up in December, I believe, is the next uh, announcement. Uh, Again, we're we're sort of hearing things are great, but they're not so great. Is it long and steady, slow and steady we're looking at right here? Right. So if I can take you back from that recession in 2007, one of the things that many people complained about is you you hear people like me saying there's been some recovery, but it doesn't feel like a recovery. There's no happy days. I don't feel this big growth spurt. And finally this year, we got some growth that we were all looking for. What's appearing more and more is we're going to go back to the kind of economy we had in 2010, 11, and 12, where we get some growth, but it's not that fast growth, the big growth numbers that we like. Not shrinking. We're not heading towards a recession. There's no reason to panic. But if you thought that these big happy days were around the corner, I've got to temper your expectations and get you to think think more like 2012, 13, 14, that kind of growth, rather than the growth that we've seen so far in 2017. Uh, Where does that leave interest rates with the Bank of Canada then? Good. So thank you for, I forgot to mention that. So yes, we saw the Bank of Canada. Basically what they did was in two settings, withdrew the support they put in after oil prices fell Mm -hmm. in the early part of 2015. So we're back now to the interest rates that we've actually had from 2007 to 2015. If the good news had continued at the rate it was happening, then I was going to bet that in December we'd get one more quarter point rate increase this year. I would say to you that there's probably less now than 25% of people who study this thing who think that's going to happen. There may be rate increases in our future, but they're not going to happen in 2017. I'm not even sure they're going to be on the table for the first half of 2018 now because of the caution. Now, if by some chance we got great news out of NAFTA, suddenly America is negotiating and agreeing with our points of view, if we saw a big uptick from the free trade with Europe, if we once again saw oil prices maybe get up to $60 a barrel, not good news at the pump, but good news for the Canadian economy, then this might change. But none of that's going to happen in this year. So if you were worried about more increases in your mortgage rates, don't worry about that in 2017. It'll be mid to late 2018, I think, before you see the next rate increase. All right, let's talk about Sears. And my goodness, we have certainly talked about that over the years, (laughs) it appears. Uh, Now we have a past leader coming out and saying, you know, we could have saved this. were they trying too hard to liquidate and, and mm-hmm. keep creditors happy as opposed to keeping this thing alive? Mm-hmm. Well, I know many of your listeners have no great use for this consumer 
or excuse me, for this Creditor Protection Act that we have. But I'm not sure where this Mr. Stanzel is coming from here. Uh, I can see nothing in the act that leads you one way or another. What a judge's interest always is here, the judge acts behalf on the creditors to try to get them the most value for their loans. And the judge's first inclination is always to keep it as an operating entity. It's usually the best way to get the creditors as much of the cash as they possibly can and not to head to liquidation. The minute you go to liquidation, you're admitting up front that people aren't going to get dollar for dollar. Now, clearly this gentleman who was the past chair of the board at Sears he felt he had some way forward, and every time he tried to make it happen, he felt there were roadblocks coming up. But I don't think these were roadblocks from the judge. I think these were roadblocks within the organization. They didn't feel he had the financing. They didn't feel he had the right partners. And so they weren't prepared to buy into the offer that he was making. It was too conditional, too temporary. I get where he's coming from now. He, in his own circle, seems like an important man, and he's licking his wounds. What do you do at that point? Well, you lash out and you blame everybody else but myself. But I don't think this is true in the Sears case at all. I don't think there was a prejudgment that had to go to, to liquidation. But whatever you were going to do to save the company had to be big and dramatic because it had been leaking oil for so long, and he just didn't have big and dramatic up his sleeve. You know, when we think of Sears back in the old days, it was the catalog stores. Uh, there weren't even, even any stores. It was a, a catalog retail kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You picked up your delivery from your general store or what have you, almost like the, uh, you know a very primitive version of what became consumers distributing. Why didn't they go back that way? You know, and that raises a good question, not so much because of the catalogs, but because today's modern equivalent of the catalog is, is the web. Absolutely. So you've already got all the pictures, you've got all the descriptions. Why don't you simply migrate that onto the web? For whatever reason, Sears was very late to get to the web, and then when they did, it wasn't the ordering side they had the problem on, but what we call the fulfillment side, getting the orders now that you've placed them back to you in a quick and timely fashion. Uh, Scott, it was just a little over a year ago, 14 months ago, that Sears unveiled a new warehouse. I want to tell you it was in the Milton area. This was supposed to really speed things up and make everything wonderful. And we all covered this. You know, you covered this as a journalist. I covered it as a person speaking on this, saying this is great news for Sears. This could be the saving grace for Sears. And then three months later at Christmas time, what did shoppers hear? Well, I know you've ordered your product, but it won't arrive until January. Hey, you know, you're trying to get people to take a chance on you, and you drop the ball on fulfillment. They just seem to be, the, as the old story goes, the gang who couldn't shoot straight. They couldn't hire a CEO. They went through three CEOs in three years. They could never find the money to do a turnaround because the American parent, the same guy, by the way, who complained a bit about this, he was draining off cash to do other things down south of the border. And then when they did finally come up with a clever idea, they couldn't execute it well. I'm afraid that combination is not any one thing, but that combination is what really doomed Sears. Uh, At the end, what do retailers learn from this experience? You, You know, you have to constantly be innovating. We consumers are not static people. There's an old psychologist named Maslow who said, as part of his principles in life, that what we need and want always depends upon what we have. So as we satisfy one need, other needs come forward. And this is so critical in retailing. You can't just say, well, I've done it this way for 30 years. I'm going to keep doing it. I have to experiment. Some experiments will fail. Some will succeed. But I've got to keep tweaking it to stay relevant. If I pause, if I basically go to sleep, for five years or 10 years, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be so out of sync with the marketplace, I may never be able to catch up. 
IKEA has been able to do this. Hudson's Bay Company has been able to do this. Uh, Dollarama has been able to do this. You know, I joke it shouldn't be called Dollarama anymore. It should be called Two Dollarama mm. because they've, they've moved upscale, if you can call it upscale, to products that are worth much more than a dollar now. They've all been adjusting, but if you don't keep adjusting, you're dooming yourself in the future. Uh, your thoughts can't uh, let you go without your thoughts on, and I don't think we've talked about this, on uh, Hamilton's Amazon uh, uh, proposal, uh, bid. Uh, obviously, uh, a long shot. What's the advantage to mm-hmm. doing this sort of thing, even though it is a long shot? Is there an advantage? Well, first, first let me deal with the long shot. So you're absolutely right. 238 bids come in. We have a ticket in the lottery, but we have a 1 in 238 chance. And frankly, you know, we had to stretch to make our bid work. We don't really have the population base. We don't really have the international airport for, for moving people. People keep thinking they want the international airport for transit of goods, but it's for the transit of people. So I, I hate to say this out loud, but I think we have less than a 1% chance of, of getting Amazon for Hamilton. So set that aside. What's the advantage, though, to doing this? They put together a bid book. I think it's a 195-page bid book. Uh, and they've really forced themselves to take a look at what are the pros and cons of doing business in Hamilton. That's information you need anyway to attract other businesses or, frankly, to grow the businesses you have. And if this causes us to refocus our efforts, to shift our priorities, to, to promote ourselves in some different ways, that's where the real benefit of doing the Amazon bid is going to be. It's not because we failed to attract Amazon, but we have new materials now and a new way of looking at ourselves as we go out to attract smaller sized businesses to our community. Will other businesses look at us differently because we are approaching this bid, because we're even trying, we're attempting? You know, if, if there were only 10 or 12 companies doing it, or if, let's just say for the sake of argument, we wound up on the short list. You know, think of The Bachelor, we're one of the 10 finalists who got a rose. Mm. Yes, it would make a difference <laughs> for us. But if we're not, if we're like the other 228 and we don't get into that final round, most people aren't even going to know that we submitted the bid. But it's really the improvement in our collateral materials and our ability to position ourselves to make the argument to people, this is why you have to come to Hamilton. We now have got these arguments clearly set in our mind. Unfortunately for the rest of the people, they're not going to know it. And also I should tell you, this is the only time I'm aware of in the last 50 years that a company has ever tried this for a headquarters. So don't get it in your head, well, we've got it ready so that when Facebook wants to do headquarters too, or Netflix or Google, we'll, we'll go after them. Nobody's ever done this before. I don't think anyone's ever going to do it this way again. Uh, interesting point. Uh, a, a lot of this being held up as if it's a prize, as if you're winning a lottery for, for getting this. Talk about the, the, the whole strategy of positioning a company this way where uh, it's a prize if you win us as opposed to what can we do for you. Well, Amazon specifically. So when we think of some of the big technology companies like Google and, and uh, Facebook, what have you, they're often seen as being quite beloved. And you hear people talking with awe about their human resources policies, what have you. Mr. Bezos, who's the head of Amazon, is not regarded in that same way. He's actually seen as a bit of a bully, a bit of an ogre. Uh, I don't want to call him Donald Trump exactly, but he, he kind of reminds you of some of Donald Trump's worst characteristics. So I think the way they structured it this way was to try to win some goodwill and treat it like a lottery and say, look, we can be a benefit to your community. Who wants us? Come on, try to attract us. And where before people couldn't say anything good about uh, uh, Amazon, now suddenly they're forced to say a lot of good things about Amazon. To me, the only downside of, of winning the bid would be the dramatic change to the Hamilton economy. Now, I know people see it as good news, 50,000 jobs. These would be jobs that paid 
50, 60, 70 thousand dollars a year. It's a low polluting company, sustainable. How wonderful. But our biggest employer at the moment is Hamilton Health Sciences, the hospital, at nearly 10,500 employees. This would be five times the size. The fortune of Hamilton would be so then inextricably tied to Amazon. If it sneezes, we've got to blow our nose. If it's feeling good, we'd be feeling good. You know, I, I would actually be worried about tipping the economic balance with this gigantic fish in the pond. I'm actually more comfortable if it went into the Toronto area, maybe even in the Mississauga area. It could still create lots of job opportunities for Hamiltonians, but it wouldn't so dominate our economy in that way. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, sir. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, We have talked many times on this show about various scams that uh, have, uh, I guess, scammers try to pull the wool over innocent victims. uh, And they're not scared to to say pretty much anything. This a recent uh, message left on my answering machine at home. This is Officer Ryan Smith from Canada Revenue Agency. The reason for the call is to inform you that you are under federal investigation because of the audit which took place on your tax papers. As you are found suspicious, we need you or your lawyer to call us back on 844-551-0596. I repeat, 844-551-0596. Don't try to disregard the message, or else it will be taken as an offense from your side. Again, this is Officer Ryan Smith from Revenue Canada. Uh, and, of course, you might remember way back when we called Ryan Smith and had a beautiful conversation with him on, on the phone before he realized we were uh, pranking him and then, uh, of course, hung up. Uh, the, the drag is, is there have been more of these, more different types of uh, various uh, scams that have uh, got police or officials' attention. A new one here, a senior citizen in Norfolk has fallen victim to an international sweepstakes lottery scam. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Constable Ed Sanchuk is with us, Norfolk OPP, and on the line now. Hello, Ed. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So tell us about this latest scam. Well, you know, it really turns my stomach because we have these fraudsters preying on not just their seniors, but everyone in general. But I can tell you that through the course of our investigation, it was a term between April of 2016 and Monday of October 31st of this year. An elderly resident of Norfolk County received several calls from unknown individuals indicating that the homeowner had won a sweepstakes lottery valued at $24,900,000. Now, they make this believable. It's amazing how much she believes that this is actually going to still follow through. And as a result, they wanted her to pay taxes on the winnings. So in the end, right now, this or one of our senior residents in Norfolk County, she's out $152,000. The problem we have is that she still believes that she won the lottery. So we're still working with, with, with her. She is a victim. She's a statistic of this multi-million dollar fraud that keeps taking place throughout the province of Ontario. Because simply put, if you have all these victims sending a large sum of money, we're talking millions of dollars. Uh, did, uh, you said that she received several calls before she actually acted on this? Well, actually, they received several calls, and as a result of them calling, um, she had forwarded the money to various addresses in San Bernardino, California, and now in New Jersey, United States. And that was just to cover the taxes for the winning. So it's basically an old fraud with some new twists. 
Mm-hmm. And I did find out from one of the investigating officers that, in fact, another person portraying to be uh, from the FBI contacted her, wanting to help her find these fraudsters, and that they would pay half of the money back to her if they could, if she would send the remaining money through them. So, long story short, they called her up asking for an additional five thousand dollars. Someone purporting to be from the FBI paid twenty five hundred dollars. Now the seniors now sent another twenty five hundred dollars, which she's out. So. We are following up with the investigation. We're going to follow the evidence and take it to where it leads us. But we wanted to put that reminder to everyone, please, don't become a statistic. And if you have been or if you had sent money to anybody, please don't be embarrassed. Contact your local police service or the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre right away. You know what's amazing here, Ed, and we've talked about this before, is that if you've been hit once, they'll come back and try again. That, that amazes me to no end that they've got the gall to, once they've taken advantage of somebody, they realize they've got somebody who they may be able to take advantage of the future, and they keep going at them. And you know, it's amazing that you do, it's amazing some of the tactics they do use. Their job from the time they get up in the morning to the time they go to bed is to defraud you of your hard-earned money to get that cash in your wallet or your purse or your bank account. And what we need to do is we're too trusting of a community. So if you should receive such a call, and we've received a lot of complaints and a lot of investigations have been conducted, people are getting calls on a regular basis, just like the one you just played before we came on the show live. I've received those calls at my house too. And it's just amazing that my wife wanted to call them back. I said, no, 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 this is a scam. We're not making any phone calls back. And what people need to realize, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. So in this case here, you know, we're really still working with the victim because that's exactly what she is, but she honestly believes that she's ultimately a winner. But now what they do now is they do use these little trickeries, and they use different tricks up their sleeve to say, listen, we now know this is a fraud. You're now working with the FBI. Let us help get your money back, but wow. we need to send money to help us do that. That is unbelievable. So even when you get somebody who's suspicious, they'll play the other angle. They'll definitely play the other angle, and they'll gain your trust. This poor victim that we have here, honestly believes that she's going to inherit this almost $25 million shortly. And I'm letting people know that if you haven't played the 649 or Ontario in Ontario and someone calls you up saying you've won an international lottery sweepstakes, I'm letting you know right now, please do not send any money. This is a scam, especially if they tell you, oh, you've also won a luxury vehicle with that, with that lottery. A lot of times people are just trying to defraud you of your money. And in this case, just like if anyone should show up at your residence unannounced for any type of services, or getting any type of information on the phone, the red flag should go up and you should just simply hang up the phone. So um, let me ask you this, Ed. If she believes that the money's still coming and that she still won, how did you get the call that this was an issue? Actually, it was a call from a third party that uh, that, that became concerned. And as a result of that, we followed up with, with, with them and then we spoke to the victim in this matter. However, we cannot stop someone from sending money to somebody um, that doesn't want to get the help or, or realize that they're being defrauded. So we've put some, some things in place. We went over to the house. We've tried to speak to this individual several times. However, what it comes down to is that they have this person believing that they are, in fact, this winner of this $24 million. So the fact is that regardless of other circumstances we've had investigations-wise, we've had individuals borrow large sums of money in order to pay the tax wings, where now we've had people actually lose their homes, they lost their bank accounts, their entire life savings. So... We just want to do a proactive message out there saying, please, we're urging anyone, doesn't matter if you're elderly or young, please, if you get this type of phone call, hang the phone up. You're not a winner. How concerned are you, Ed, that this person's going to fall victim again if they still believe that the money's coming? Well, I spoke to the investigating officer, and there are concerns there. So we do have, uh, we do have various things in place that may assist this victim. However, uh, the, it really comes down to the fact getting family members involved, because a lot of times when you become a victim of fraud, you don't want to report it because you're embarrassed. Yeah. I'm just letting people know, Please, don't be embarrassed. Make sure you make that report. 
let let the let your local police service agency know wherever you're living, and make sure you contact the Canadian Anti Fraud Center because they do track these types of scams. And for anyone that wants additional information, they can go on the Canadian Anti Fraud Center and they have a look at the the, the recent list of scams that are occurring in Ontario. Uh, have you had other uh, examples of this scam before, Ed? Is this new one to you? Uh, this is not a new scam uh, by any stretch, but they, they use little di- different tactics uh, with regards to how they make it so believable. They'll send documents. They'll send, you know, uh, it looks like documents from uh, from border services or from the FBI. And in certain cases, too, we've had, you know, I, have, I remember one investigation where we had the eating romance scam where our victim fell and fell to that scam and lost $798,000. So mm. that was a large sum of money where they believed that they were meeting somebody. All of a sudden, their story changes, saying they've had family emergencies and they've requested funds. And that person here in Norfolk sent approximately seven hundred ninety-eight thousand dollars. Oh my! Um, so it's just a good opportunity to speak to all your family, let them know exactly what's going on. But you know what? We do live in a good, good community, and we live in a good country. But there's still people that will try and take advantage of us. But let's let's make sure we understand there's a lot more good than bad. But in this case here, we just want to do that proactive education. Let people know exactly what's transpiring in our community because if it's happening here, it's happening around the province. Uh, did this senior buy a lottery ticket? Why would they think they have won something? Well, they again, that's where it comes down to making sure that you understand what you put your name in because a lot of times what you'll do is you'll have people signing up for various different items. Uh, right. You know, when, when you go shopping, you'll sign up for a sweepstakes or you do this, you do that. Mm-hmm. So. A lot of times your name can be added to a list, but in this case here, I'm not under the impression that uh, this person bought a ticket for any lottery. So I, you know, it's just one of these things where these scammers get up at the time, from the time they get up in the morning, they make their story so believable that you honestly think that you're going to win this large amount of money. When in fact, you're not winning any money, they're just taking advantage of you and getting your, getting your hard-earned money out of your wallet or purse and getting it sent to them. Uh, you said that in this case, the person sent money to San Francisco. Any idea where these are originating from? How does San Francisco fit into this? Well, this one here was San Bernardino, California. Oh, San Bernardino, and, uh, sorry. Cape May in New Jersey. So there's different areas where, they, where they'll progress along. Now, the only issue that we have, and I used to, be, uh, I used to investigate frauds, um, I can tell you right now that sometimes when they're actually transferring the money to different accounts, those accounts are people that are also victims, too. So then when we start doing the investigation, you now, you're now compiling a list of victims that's, that that's occurring to. So it's a really in-depth investigation where it does take time. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, obviously with the cooperation we're receiving, we're hoping that we can definitely try and track down where this is originating from. How hard is it to track this stuff down? How hard is it to catch these people? Well, depending on the circumstances, depending on the investigation itself, it's, it's really in-depth. Uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to open up fake accounts at all. Uh, you can use computers at different, uh, different cafes, different websites. And so what we need to do is we really need to look at where this, where this is coming from, how it's progressing. Uh, you know, the phone numbers are a dime a dozen. The phone number that you received in your answer machine will be changed tomorrow to a different phone number. Uh, that happened to me about two weeks ago. And again, I called that number back and it's out of service now. So they, they move, they're fluid, they're constantly moving. But eventually, they're always looking over the back because eventually, before you know, you know what, We'll be coming knocking on your door and hopefully have somebody in handcuffs, we're hoping, anyways. Are, are most of these originating from overseas, Ed? Are any of these done local? You know what? I, I really don't have that information. I do apologize, but it could be happening in your own back door. It could be happening an hour or two down the road. Uh, it just really depends on where they set up their operations and how they're doing their operations. But a lot of times, you know, when you do get these calls, they're originating from overseas. I know it be the Canada Revenue Agency scam. I can let people know that the CRA and the police are not coming to arrest you. The CRA and the police are not going to come to your work or your residence to arrest you. But it makes it so believable because it's almost like a scareware tactic. When you log on to your computer and something pops up saying you're looking at inappropriate activity and it appears to be from the RCMP and they want you to pay $200 fee. That right there is a scareware tactic. 
And what we need people to do is realize that. Make sure you don't click on any links. Make sure that when you do get that mail in, if it's garbage mail, put it where it belongs, in the garbage. And hang up the phone on anyone purporting to be someone from Canada Revenue Agency or someone claiming that you've won this international lottery sweepstakes. How concerned are you, Ed, about the size of these, uh, the, the size of these thefts? I mean, you know, we were talking about this before a couple of years ago or a year ago. You know, people were paying with with uh, phone cards, this, that, or the other, uh, iTunes cards, what have you, gift cards, uh, and, and it was, you know, a couple hundred bucks, a thousand bucks here. Now you're talking massive amounts of money. I mean, well, yeah, how- if you really add it all up, it's it's it, it's it's a multi million dollar enterprise, and I, I can tell you right now. It'll only stop when the scammers stop getting money, banking information or personal information. So the best thing to do is simply hang up the phone. But we want to make sure that people understand not to feel embarrassed. So if you suspect you may have been a target or you've already sent funds, be sure you're not alone. We want you to contact your local police service or check out the Ontario Ministry of Consumer Services website or contact the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, which is normally phone as phone busters. When you publicize this stuff, Ed, and you take the latest story, how no matter how bizarre it is, out to the media and such, do you get feedback from this? Do you get more calls into your into your uh, into your office inquiring about these? Yes, definitely. Our media partners are you know you guys are pivotal in getting this information out and just uh, having this story out to our general public and around the community and outside of our community uh, has generated some calls uh, for investigation as well. You know, it's just one of these things where we want to just make sure we do our proactive messaging, get that word out to the, to all of our residents, not just in Norfolk County, but the province of Ontario, so that we can ensure everyone doesn't become statistics of this multi-million dollar fraud. What are the chances of getting any of this money back? You know, in the past, I know there's been some, some success stories. Again, it really depends on the investigation, where the investigation takes us, but we will follow the evidence and take it to where it leads us. But our main focus is, you know, assisting that person that's now become a victim and a statistic of this crime, because, you know what, fraud is a crime. I know a lot of people look at it that, it, you know, it's just a fraud. Well, fraud is a crime. If you've ever been defrauded, let me know how you feel because it feels like you've been extremely violated simply because you're now a victim of this crime. And what we need to do is hold these individuals accountable. But more importantly, we need, our, we need all of our public to educate themselves on the various scams that are occurring in our communities. So the Canadian Anti-Fraud website, website has a ton of updated information, and I'm urging everyone to go to that website to have a look at the new scams that are occurring. Uh, this is not going away, is it, Ed? I mean, with technology um, making great gains and grounds like it is, there just seems to be every day something else that's different that they've come up with to scam you. Yeah, there's always something different. I know, you know, just, just working in the, in the media relations unit uh, for the Norfolk County OPP, I can tell you on a regular basis I'm putting out regular reports of uh, people being a statistic of fraud. And we just need to make sure that we do our due diligence you know, it really comes down to the fact that they're not just targeting seniors, they're targeting the general population. So we need people to understand that if you get a call from someone purporting to be or claiming to be from Microsoft or someone saying you've got a virus on your computer, I'm letting people know, please do not give anyone access to your computer. That just, that just now opens you up mm. for a lot of different issues. So, uh, again, any advice here, Ed? Like, if it's too good to be true, it is. I mean, how do you know who's calling you, who's not calling you, if it's legit, if it's not legit? Well, you know what, I've always looked at it this way, and from all the, uh, the presentations I've provided throughout our community, I do a lot of frauds and scams and identity theft presentations, not just in Norfolk, but around our surrounding communities as well. If it's too good to be true, it is. So if you, have, if you haven't made that call or you haven't bought that lottery ticket or you haven't bought that winning ticket, scratch ticket, you're not a winner until you've actually gone and checked it yourself. If you've got someone claiming to say that you've now won a lottery or your long-distance relative has died and has left you $35 million U.S. million and they're down in Nigeria or down in England, do yourself a favor. 
put it where it belongs, and that piece of paper needs to go through the shredder. I just tell people, you know what, if it's too good to be true, it really is. You're not going to get something for nothing, not unless you've played that lottery and you've won that $40 million, and you can guarantee that because you have that ticket in your hand. But if you have individuals contacting you for personal or financial information, the red flag should go up, and you should simply say no thank you and hang up that phone. All right, Constable uh, Ed Sanchuk has been with us. Norfolk OPP, a senior citizen in the area, fallen victim to an international sweepstakes lottery scam, losing $152,000. Unbelievable. Ed, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. All right, thanks for having me. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.